Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 to 21. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased." And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we think on this passage and meditate upon it, and as I preach, Father, that you would bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. Lord, may they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So if we go back a few verses, verses 12 through 15, uh, which I preached a few weeks ago, you remember the Apostle Peter wrote, I will be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. The apostle wanted to make sure that they did not forget what is written in the good deposit in the scriptures. What um, What had he been reminding them of? Well, that the Christian faith is one of pursuing holiness. That was much of what is, uh, comprises the first chapter. As Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And so the Apostle Peter is reminding them of these truths that were given to the Apostles by Jesus himself. Now in our passage this morning, he goes on to say that the things they are teaching are not cleverly devised tales. They're not, they're not um, clever stories. They're not uh, just the imaginations of man. That is indeed what others would accuse the apostles of teaching. Rabble-rousers would spread false rumors even during those first centuries that Jesus hadn't risen from the dead and that it was all just a hoax. You remember that the chief priests and the elders just after Jesus' resurrection Right, give a large sum of money to those soldiers who had been stationed around Jesus' tomb. Right? And they direct the soldiers to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. Right? 
And then Matthew's gospel then says this story was widely spread among the Jews as it is to this day. Right? They wanted people to believe that this man Christ hadn't risen from the dead and that what the apostles were teaching were just cleverly devised hoax, cleverly devised tales. And so the apostles had to fight against those lies throughout their ministries. And what do they have going for them? Well, what they have going for them is this. They were eyewitnesses. They were eyewitnesses of the events that took place during the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. So one very important event at which the apostle Peter was present that I didn't mention is this, the transfiguration. Peter was present. He was an eyewitness of the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, This is what he describes in our passage. Notice in verse 16 that Peter says they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Not just eyewitnesses of Jesus the man, but eyewitnesses of his majesty. The apostles were not just looking at at some some guy who did strange but um, ordinary things. They also saw Jesus' miracles, but there had been other men in history, right, who had done miracles. There have been other men in history who performed miracles. The prophets in the old days performed miracles, and Jesus had too. But what separated this apostle Peter from the others is that he had seen Jesus' full majesty. He had seen his glory. Peter had seen Jesus unveiled. He had seen the second person of the Trinity unveiled. He had seen the resplendent and the eternal radiance of Jesus Christ during this transfiguration. Matthew 17 says this, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brothers, so those three, Peter, James, and John, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish. I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, notice that Peter gets interrupted by God in the midst of that. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came up to them and touched them. And he said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So not even all the apostles were able to claim that they had seen Jesus transfigured. Not even all the apostles, just Peter, James, and John. 
Many had seen him speak, and just to see Jesus speak was extraordinary because you remember he spoke as one with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. So just to hear him speak set him apart. Many had seen him work miracles, and, and perhaps his miracle working was, was vastly more frequent than anybody else's, and they had seen him do that. But Peter and James and John saw something different. They saw his unveiled face, so to speak. They saw his majestic glory. And here's the rub, right? Peter is setting us up for something here, setting us, setting us, setting up to teach us something here. You, Christian, believe Jesus was the Son of God You believe that he was the long-promised Messiah. He came from heaven. He put on our flesh. He lived in the world. He died. He rose again because you received the testimony of, of eyewitnesses as true. That's why. That's why you believe those things is because you've received eyewitness reports and you've received them as true. Right? You take what is written in God's word, not as a, a huge lie written by clever deceivers, but as it is the very word of God. You have determined that truth is found in these eyewitness accounts rather than in, in the, the rumination of philosophers over the ages or the, the explanations of origins from evolutionary biologists the sad proclamations of the nihilists, right? Or, or the ramblings of Mohammed, right? You have determined that this, these eyewitness accounts are faithful, historical, true. Again, what was it that Peter witnessed on that day in which Jesus' face shone like the sun? First, it was, it was Jesus' unveiled glory. He saw the eternal Son of God's face shining, Second, he not only saw, but Peter heard. He heard. He heard the words of the first person of the Trinity, the Father, say, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Peter writes in this epistle, We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so Peter had the experience of hearing the very voice of Almighty God. And those who have been given ears to hear now, those who have been given ears to hear now, as if with Peter there on the mountain, hear his report as God's very speech. As if the Father were speaking it directly into our hearing. As I read it, it's as if God is speaking it to you, if you have ears to hear it. Or... You don't. Or you don't receive it that way and you don't have ears to hear it. If you don't think God has spoken and written, you think the Christian faith is just a 2,000-year-old con. Or if not that, you think that we have in the Scriptures a mixture of truth and error and it is only by my own intellect that I can discern between truth and error. We have facts and embellishments. The Bible has some timeless truths, but it is certainly not an inspired and inerrant work of the Holy Spirit. 
is what somebody would think if they did not have ears to hear it. If you think that, you think there is, think of this, if you think that about the scriptures, that it's a mixture of truth and error, you, you think there is about as much or perhaps even more truth in a Maya Angelou poem or in the opening monologue of a Jimmy Kimmel show. Right? Or on the pages of the Washington Post or the New York Times. You believe there's more truth in those things than there is in this ancient book written by unenlightened pre-moderns who knew nothing about electricity and antibiotics and nuclear fission and space travel. I remember when my thinking about the Bible and the scriptures changed. It was at my conversion. That's when I started thinking differently about the scriptures. At my conversion, when God opened my eyes to his majestic glory. Right? I was 19 and I had been reading the Bible for many months, making margin notes about uh, what I, an, you know, an enlightened 19-year-old punk, believed to be its errors. Right, filling up the margins of my Bible with, with contradictory statements. <clears throat> there were things I couldn't understand, and I thought if I couldn't understand it, well, then it's the fault of the writer, not the fault of me. And there, there were other things that I understood only too well, and I was like, mm not for me. That's not how I'm going to live my life. That's not... Uh, that's not enlightened thinking. That's the thinking of, of the ignorant. And I would have gone on in that attitude. I would have continued in that attitude if God had not opened my eyes and unstopped my ears and given me a heart of flesh. I would have gone on seeing and never perceiving. Yet by God's grace, he chose me and washed me in the blood of his son and he sealed me with his Holy Spirit. And from that point on, I knew the Bible to be the Word of God. From that point on, from that day on, I remember the day. From that day on, the Word of God was the Word of God. It was a supernatural product of ordinary men carried along by the Holy Spirit. What the apostles had seen, I now saw in their witness. What the apostles had heard, I was now hearing in their words. That is, friends, the uniform experience of Christians through time. That experience that I ha had is the uniform experience of Christians through time. You have had the same experience if you have had that experience. The Apostle Paul wrote, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Right? He writes that to the Thessalonian church. You received what we said as the word of God, not the word of men. Now, verse 19 
says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. What does he mean by this? Well, he's transitioning to make a radical statement. He's just told us about his experience of seeing Jesus transfigured, hearing the very voice of God speaking from heaven. Now he's going farther back and thinking about the words that the prophets spoke. And he makes the astonishing statement that what you and I have in the inscripturated word is more sure than their speech. God has given us something better, clearer, more sure than than Noah floating on the waters of the flood in the ark, more sure than Moses parting the Red Sea, even better than the voice of God at Jesus' transfiguration. We have the written word of God. We have the written, inscripturated word of God. And that word is more extensive It's more complete, it is more lasting, it is more developed, it is more helpful, it is more explained, even then, if we took them by themselves, the words of the prophets. Think about the Apostle Peter saying that to the Jews. They accepted the word of the prophets and reverenced them, as we do. But now he says that they have reported the message given to the apostles about Jesus Christ and him crucified, what they have reported, and that is more sure. It is to be accepted more easily than those words that the Jews already accepted as faithful. If the words of the prophets of old were the, the sun shining at dawn, the words of the apostles are the sun shining at high noon. Both are light, but the fullness of God's revelation breaks out in this report of the Messiah's birth, death, resurrection, ascension, session, and return. Verse 20 and 21 then give us clear statements about just exactly how the Word of God was produced. First, the prophecies of Scripture are not just personal interpretations of events and of truths. In other words, the prophecies of Scripture are not merely the reflections of men on divine things. Right? It's not just the musings of men about divine things. The Word of God is not merely the product of a creative writing class. It's not what it is. It is not just some dude's musings on some strange things that happened a long, long time ago. It's much more than that. So what is the Pentateuch? And what are the Psalms? And what are the Gospels? And what are the the letters of Peter and Paul? He answers that question in verse 21. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Scriptures, the Apostle teaches us, were not produced by the human will by itself. That accounts for all other books ever written, written by the human will. Moby Dick is the act of the will of Herman Melville, not an act of the Holy Spirit. Paradise Lost is the result 
of the act of the will, the work of the mind, and the, the, the work of decisions, and, and uh, just the product of labor of John Milton, of his will. Renton's dissertation is an act of the will of Renton Rathbun. We pray for the Lord's help, but we do not believe he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit in writing inerrant words. <clears throat> but Scripture, right? Scripture, the 66 books of the Bible, these were ultimately um, by an act of the will of God himself, specifically the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. They were written by an act of the will of God. They were written by men moved by the Holy Spirit. It's not that the will of the men was, was inactive in the writing. They, were, they still thought and they still put ink on page. They picked up a quill and they wrote on the parchment, whatever it may have been, a vellum. But the product was the will of the Holy Spirit, not the product of the will of those men. If the scriptures are not the product of the will of God, well, then they would be filled with error. They would be unreliable because the will of man is corrupt and the will of man always produces a tainted product. But the will of man carried along by the Holy Spirit, well, that produces a prophetic word made more sure. It produces the very thoughts of God. It produces the very words of God. The Apostle Paul says the same thing, but uses a dramatic image for um, source of the Scripture. He says the Scriptures are theopneustos. That's, I'm not sneezing, that's Greek. Theopneustos, which means God breathed. The words of Scripture are breathed out of the mouth of God. They are breathed right, right forth from from God's will himself. And you remember the passage, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Breathed out of the very mouth of God. Imagine that. I mean, think of that. Think of how different that makes it than any other written word you've ever held in your hands, that you've ever been thrilled by, right? We read, and we read delightful, uh, creative visions of, of different worlds, right? And they, they, they set our minds on fire, but none of those was written by the will of God and came forth from the mouth of God. Well, this is nothing less than the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, an inspiration, the breathed outedness um, makes reference of that word in 2 Timothy 3. What, what it means is this, the Holy Spirit so superintended the writers of the word, the writers of the Bible, that the words they produced are the words of each particular author and at the same time the exact words of God himself with all the authority his speech carries. Now, having said all that, Let's get down to the brass tacks, as they say. In verse 19, in the midst of his talk on the inspiration of the Word of God, the Apostle writes this. 
So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Let me read that again. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In short form, Peter says, pay attention to God's word. Pay attention to God's word. Pay attention to it. Give your attention, young men and women, give your attention to the word of God. Are you, are you paying attention to the Word of God? Are you giving it your attention? Is it a constant companion to you, the Word of God? Are you paying attention to it? There is an inspired book written by God Almighty. Does it have your attention? Do you cling to His Word? Do you hold fast to God's Word? I mean, many of you are are going through your Bible reading plans. You've got 88-day crazy plans out there. You've got one-year plans. You've got two-year plans. You've, some of you have got the I'm going to randomly choose a passage today plan. Um, but none of that counts. Okay, I'm taking that off the table today. None of that counts. Because often that leads to no meditation. It just pleases your legalism and you can check it off and you realize after you've read three chapters that you have no idea. You couldn't recite one verse back of what you just read. Okay? I'm talking about paying attention to the Word of God. Really paying attention to the Word of God. Yeah, there's, there's good reason to blaze through the Bible and read it and just take it in and you know, let it like a, a fire hose in the mouth come into you, that's fine. But, but not without this, not without the actual paying attention to the Word of God, which sinks into how we behave and what we believe and how we treat others and what we think of God and how, what we should do next. It, it sinks into all those. So a good diagnostic question in light of our verse this morning would be this, what has your attention right now? If you had to make a list of the things that has your attention, what is it? What makes the list? What's on there? Or perhaps it'd be better to think about it this way. What had your attention last week? Because now we all can think back on our week and it's already passed and we can compile what had our attention. And where does the Word of God fall on that? Where does meditation on the Word of God, where does the memorizing of that Word so it sinks in, fall on that list? No doubt you, like me, have other things on your list, like Facebook headlines. This had your attention. You paid attention to Facebook. I paid attention to Facebook headlines. You listen to conservative talk radio. You listen to talking heads, you listen to Fox News, you listen to conservative commentators. They had your attention. They had your attention so much that you went off and told about three or four other people what they had told you. 
You never did that with the Bible, but you did that with your conservative radio commentators. What about sports? Well, that's gotten hard, and it's wonderful that it's gotten hard to watch sports. It's boring. It's dumb without spectators. It's politically charged, you know. Just let it die. Let it die. Um, what about gaming, right? What about spending time on your computer screens gaming? Did that have your attention? Did it get your effort? Did it pique your joy, right? This is what I've been waiting for all day is to have my schoolwork done and then I can get on to my gaming. What about the stock market, right? It's going up and down. It's going like crazy. Some of you have investments, I don't, you know. And, uh, and so you pay attention to it. You, pay, uh, you, you compile your wealth multiple times a day. Let's see where you're at. What about politics? Oh, politics. We're all sort of in this, this, we're all sort of being forced to pay attention to politics. And we want to be informed citizens, and we want to make the right decision about elections. We want to do right when it comes to politics, but... But there's politics and then there's politics, right? There's politics and then there's conspiracy theories, right? Some of us are wrapped up in conspiracy theories. We have no provable points. In fact, the less provable it is, the more tantalizing it is to tell others of it because then they just have to accept it on face value. Right? We wonder why everything dislodges us from our happiness, and yet we're paying attention to everything but what is eternally true and fixed by God, which is the good deposit written in his word. We are tickled by discussions about those conspiracy theories, and we neglect the word of God. And you know what happens when you pay, when you pay attention to conspiracy theories and neglect the word of God? You know what happens? You become like a ship that has come unfixed from its mooring. You will be tossed about by every new tantalizing, tantalizing facts, every piece of information you get. I know so many people who have, have paid so much attention to conspiracy theories that they have deemed themselves, because of these conspiracy theories, experts in epidemiology, Experts in constitutional law, experts in American history, experts in civil government, right? Experts in alien encounters. And not once in their analysis of the times have they brought scripture to bear in any of those situations in any meaningful way. One would think that Reformed Christians who believe in God's sovereign power to, to decree whatsoever comes to pass, whether that be a hair falling from our heads or the, the falling of a nation, we, it, it would seem that they would not get carried away with conspiracy theories. I get why premillennial dispensationalist Arminians would get caught up in conspiracy theories. That makes perfect sense with their theology. But I can't for the life of me figure out why Reformed Presbyterians would get caught up in conspiracy theories. 
oh, wicked men will do inexplicable things and, and the forces of wickedness will align together as they always have. You'll get weird alliances between people who are green and, and the United Nations and, and uh, Russia. Right? Wicked men will align together, but they do not and will not ever exist outside of the will of God. They don't. And so we needn't look for an explanation for anything outside of the will of God. Yes, that's true. It's true. We don't need to look for an explanation for anything outside of God has decreed this to come to pass. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. And what peace there is in believing that, right? What, what great comfort, what whistling through chaos we can do as Christians. There's peace in believing that, but the problem is you won't believe it if you don't pay attention to where it is written in the Word of God. You won't pay attention to it if you don't read what God has said is His will for this world. You'll just be tossed about by new headlines, right? But if you know what fixed truth, what the will of God is in His Word, then you will be immovable. Ephesians 1.11, God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Let me put it this way. If you, are pay, if you are not paying attention to God's word, if God's word is not the grid by which you understand yourself and this world, well then you are that ship that's adrift at sea. Without masts or sails, you're just going to be pushed around by currents. You don't know where you're even going to end up. Psalm 119 says, The unfolding of your words gives light, it gives understanding to the simple. Also, Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Right? That's what the word of God is. It's a light, it's a lamp, it is understanding. It it gives you an understanding of everything in this world. Here's another thing. Why are there not more Christians who are experts in the Scriptures? Why? Every Reformed church should be filled with experts in the Scriptures. And I'm not talking... I'm not talking... You've written a theological dictionary of the New Testament. I'm talking, I know what the Word says, and I believe it, and I know enough of it, and it floats around enough in my head that it, it, it binds me in. It closes me in. It, it helps me to do what's next and to do it in a godly way. Isn't it true that all Christians, though they are not theologians or paid biblical scholars, all Christians should be thoroughly steeped in Bible knowledge? Why? Because the command of Scripture is to pay attention to it. It's very simple. Pay attention. Pay attention to the Word of God. Pay attention to it. But there are very few of us who actually know the Bible, who know enough of it to remind ourselves of truth, 
when false teachers and wicked counselors and are, are coming at us, which is going to be the second chapter of, of Peter's epistle. There's a logic to uh, his, his words. This should not be. Every Christian must, must be steeped in the Scriptures, must be paying attention to the Scriptures, must be searching the Scriptures for, for help with depression rather than immediately going to the doctors. I'm not opposed to going to doctors for depression. But hear what I'm saying. There is help for that in the Scriptures. King David was depressed and wrote all about it. Maybe, maybe those Psalms would be a help to you. right? Or you're, you're on top of the earth. God has is, God is given you a new job, and He's given you a marriage, and He's, and he's given you fruitfulness, and... Things are going well, and you, want to, and you know that when things are going well, you have a tendency to just presume upon the grace of God continuing. And so you go back and you read about Israel in the, coming into the promised land and God saying to them, don't you forget me. Don't you dare forget me. Because you're going to go in there and it's going to be milk and honey and comforts, and you won't have to dig wells because they're already dug, and you're going to go in there, you're going to forget me, and sure enough, they forget him. But not for those who are steeped in the word, who know this, and who know that when prosperity comes, they should be girding themselves up for faithful living. There are very few of us who know our Bibles, who know enough to remind ourselves of it, when circumstances come up, every Christian should know the word. That was one of the goals of the Reformation, right? That was one of the primary goals of the Reformation is to get the word of God written into the hands of everybody. Not just chain it to a pulpit, keep it in Latin so that the priests were the only ones who could dispense what was in it, even though they often dispensed what was not in it. But that was the goal of translating God's word into many languages during that time. Remember what Tyndale said, If God spares my life, in a few years a plowboy shall know more of the scriptures than you do. Speaking to and of the Pope. Right? A plowboy is going to know more of the scriptures than the supposed head of the church. And that was their goal, and that should be our goal. And yet here we are, paying attention to conspiracy theories and losing our mooring, medicating ourselves with every herb and every medication under the sun, but finding very little comfort in God's Word, declaring our expertise on anything and everything to anybody who will listen and, and willfully ignorant about the very source of truth, God's Word. I mean, in a sense, in a sense, isn't it scandalous that a Christian would know anything more than he knows the Word of God? I mean, even with a PhD in economics, you would still want to know more about God's Word than you would economics. Or at least... If it's not, not knowing in that sense, at least it's, it's the, 
the receiving and living and applying of it that should be constant. I think many, many of the men that I went to seminary with at Covenant Seminary went through their MDiv, didn't have a, a call into the ministry, and just and then decided to go on to higher education after that. And it really was because they were bored with Scripture. They were bored with Bible, and they really wanted to dig into a more intellectual field, right? Go, in, go and get that PhD, that, that terminal degree. And, uh, and it was because the Word of God just did not have enough stimulation for them. I mean, that's scandalous. It's God's book. God wrote this book. He breathed it out. When we have spare minutes, we turn to our phones. We turn to, a, and trust me, I am, I am smacking myself in this, right? I am slaying myself in the pulpit during this sermon. I am not just laying it thick on you, you hypocrites. Right? I'm the hypocrite. When we have spare minutes, we turn to our phones, we turn to our news alerts, we turn to push notifications. We love to, to uh, I mean, this, we love to look at ads for sales, stuff we can buy. We, we, um, we play Minesweeper, we do our tweety, tweety, tweeties. We listen to podcasts. We get our ESPN updates. We, we listen to mind-numbing music. The, better, the closer it leads us to trance, the more we enjoy it. Right? We just fill... We, we think we're busy because we're availing ourselves of all these entertainments, but the fact of the matter is, is none of us are busy. None of us are busy, okay? Not so busy that we can't pay attention to God's Word. None of us. Not even you mothers with little children. So we give our attention to all these things. We pay attention to the, the, this and that. And the prophetic word made more sure, written by the Holy Spirit, collects dust. And it's neglected because we, dear brothers and sisters, have swallowed the lies of the devil and the doctrine of false teachers, that the word is irrelevant that the word is obtuse, that it's hard to understand, that it's boring, that it doesn't relate to me, that it's old, it's antiquated, right? It's too long. And those are the lies of the devil to get you to neglect it. But the passage says that you would do well to pay attention to it. That is what God requires of you, and that is what God has determined is good for you, and that is the means that God will use to bring you to his heavenly kingdom. Knowing the Word of God, paying attention to the Word of God. The Christian who neglects the Word of God is like the man who neglects food. But of course, 
that person doesn't exist. Nobody neglects food. Nobody does. The odd person doing a hunger strike for social justice might neglect food. But no one neglects food, right? But if we, um, but if we neglect the Word of God, it's like we've become this thing that doesn't exist, which is a person who neglects food. No one willingly does that because, one, it's necessary for life, and two, it's one of the immense pleasures of life, food, right? Yet the Christian who neglects the Word of God is neglecting that which is, one, necessary for life, and two, is one of the immense pleasures of life, the Word of God. It's just like food. It's better than food, right? There are scriptures about that, right? Every word bread, mouth of God. You mean to tell me that the creator of the universe and all things in that world has written a book? The creator of the universe has written a book. You mean I can read it? You mean I can, I can read it? I can pick it up and read it? I can hear it preached? I can get together with other Christians to study it? To try to get down into the meat of it? I mean, that's stupendous. That is absolutely stupendous. Think about it, dear brothers and sisters. The word says, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. We're all racked by anxious thoughts, but the Christian takes those anxious thoughts captive by mining the Scripture to grab hold of God's consolations, all of which are written down here for you to know and believe. God's comforts, God's promises, God's words meant for His, his uh, aching children. And think about this, even if we want to go beyond just individual comforts, God's word speaks to us about loving our neighbor and how to live in persecution and what is godly government and the meaning of deadly pestilence, right? In other words, God's word teaches us how to think rightly about what is happening today. Go to the word, not to conspiracy theories, not to Facebook headlines. That is all crap. Okay, you have truth here. Go to the Word of God to understand COVID-19. That's where you go. God's Word teaches us how to think rightly about what is happening about us. We needn't pay heed to those theories because God's Word explains all of this for us. It not only explains the deadly pestilence, but it explains the fear that leads to governments overreacting to somewhat deadly pestilence. It teaches us that semi-deadly pestilence and government overreach and shutting down the economy are from God. And there is much to think about on that front. Jeremiah announced this to the nation of Israel. He said, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to bring on this city and all its towns the entire calamity that I have declared against it, because they have stiffened their necks so as not to heed my what? Words. 
I'm going to bring calamity on there because they're not heeding my words. They're not listening to the prophets. They're not listening to Jeremiah. They're not doing any of this. And you wonder if, if the, the intensity of things that are coming for us is because we as Christians have neglected his word. We don't pay attention to it. This is God's word making sense of calamity. Is there any application of that that we should make in today's world in light of all the fallout that's going on? Of course, instead of ranting and raving like a lunatic conspiracy theorist about this and that connection that you can't ever prove, perhaps you should stop and say this, God is disciplining us as a people because we have not given heed to his word. Let's repent. Let's repent. What would follow from that kind of word-directed thought? You know, what good would come from that? I mean, we could go through all the conspiracy theories, and I'd be like, nah, this, and you'd be like, yeah, that, and I'd be like, no, it's the French, and then you'd be like, no, it's Russia, and then we'd go back and forth, and you know, all these, and we'd go back and forth, but or the word could come into it and we could talk about pestilence, we could talk about God's judgment, and the result of that would not just be arrogance, it would actually be repentance, humility, prayer, and probably a lot of silence. Be quiet before God. Brothers and sisters, you would do well to pay attention to the prophetic word made more sure as a lamp shining in a dark place like this world and your own heart. You need the light of the word to give you understanding so that you do not lose, uh, so you're not that ship that's about, um, that has lost its moorings. And, and the delightful work of mining the mind of God will continue until when? Peter says, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. What day is that? The day when Christ returns to welcome you into his presence, when faith is sight, right? When faith becomes sight. Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Delight yourself in the face of Christ, which we see in Scripture until the day when we see Jesus face to face, until we see the bright morning star with our physical eyes. Studying, study him and his image in the Scriptures so that when you stand in his presence, he is not unfamiliar to you, and you hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. Study him in the scriptures where he has revealed himself so that when you're face to face with him, he does not say, depart from me. Pay attention to God's word. So recommit yourself 
to God and his word. One challenge at the very end of this, one challenge. This is what I've been doing for the past week as I contemplated this and didn't want to fully feel like the hypocrite in preaching it. Um, Read a passage, read one chapter of the Bible in the morning. There'll be one verse that sticks out to you. There may be three words in that verse that really stick out to you. Memorize those three words and chew on them all day. Come back to them every 15 minutes. This morning, I was reading in 1 Corinthians 4 where Paul says that, that the motives of men's hearts will be revealed at Jesus' return. And I thought to myself, well, I need to give a day. I need to give a month. I need to give years to contemplating that and really examining my motives. How am I loving my wife? What are my motives in my, my love for my wife? What are my motives in preaching the word? What are my motives with my children? What are my motives with strangers? What are my motives when I'm driving? All these things will be revealed before God. The the motives of your heart will be part of that that, um, portfolio that the Lord opens up and judges you by. And you'll at the end of that say, um, blood of Jesus, I'm a terrible person. I am terrible. Give me Jesus. Give me the blood of Christ. Cleanse me. But this is how the word works us over, right? Take that, read five verses and think of just one chunk of the verse. And you can memorize 10 words. You can memorize those 10 words in about 45 seconds. Do it and just think on those words this coming week. And if that means giving up your bi- through the Bible plan, give up your through the Bible plan if you can be faithful to this, this, this more meditative approach to letting the word of God dwell within you richly.